Ayun, how how are you doing? The last time I think we saw each other was in Vienna. That was about what half a year ago or so. And when you told me you're going to yeah. Stanford. Yeah, summer, right. Uh, after the Lumos event. Yeah, it, uh, it sounds about right. Yeah, a lot so has happened. A lot of young kids there. I was from <laughs> three generations after you. Uh, after you. Yeah, with, I mean, there, uh, the society. There were a few people left. Uh, I was there when they joined, but most of them were new, including most of the board members, I believe. Yeah, it was really cool. Honestly, Lumos has been developing great. Um, I was I was so happy after the event because I saw how well they've developed, and not just like. Like, I don't know, getting more settled, getting more routine in, but really pushing the boundaries year by year, like um, new partnerships, new concepts, trying out like new ways of working in data science, around data science. I don't know if you saw, they started like debates from time to time, addition to the... Uh, yeah, so actually, actually uh, because uh, we are having a startup now, talent base, uh, it's called Tetamer uh, at the moment, we yeah. We are like in the process of like rebranding because we will not be able to use the name talent base anymore. Oh. Uh, but so we uh, we started a career platform for developers, uh, yeah. and uh, we started actually with data science. So we were actually the first one to connect with Lumos and with the oh. data science society you founded. And yeah, it was actually quite fascinating that uh, like three generations after you. Uh, it still works without you. So I was like, oh, this actually worked. <laughs> you were in Japan, and I was like. Uh, well, uh, you, you you built some structures here. I don't know if everyone actually knows what's going in there, like what's going on in there, but together they kind of like seem to function. And we talked to uh, lots of the people actually in there and I saw that they have corporations with Siemens now and yeah, yeah. Uh, they're doing lots of cool stuff and they're very enthusiastic. And I think uh, now like this year was the best year for AI so far when it comes to actually public perception. Because now yeah. people are like, oh, uh, like your parents can see like, hey, uh, what are you studying? Uh, like what you're doing? It's actually real. There's, uh, it's, yeah. it's something where the public can now see actually uh, what this is all about. So I think that was fascinating. Yeah, that is true. Um, I mean, especially in the last month with, uh, actually even longer, I would say like with Dali kind of kind of became more present, especially like visual. And then now with ChatGPT, it's uh, yeah, but making a lot of waves. Even before that, there was already like this wave of uh, people using Ch uh, GPT-3 for uh, copywriting and yeah. uh, writing blogs and all of that. Yeah, uh, And it was like started over a year ago. I, I don't know what it was, one year ago, two years ago. Uh, and now it's, it's just the first time where it's publicly accessible. Yeah. Um, with Dolly, uh, even like uh, you can use it on Canva now. So you can just type in you want your panda that's riding a bicycle in Fantasyland, and nice. you will get exactly that. And it's absolutely for free. So I think just accessibility and that is just way more open now. And people yeah. are just excited because it's something they didn't really uh, like. Works. Uh, they didn't really were exposed so much to that. Before, yeah. 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 Now that that is true, especially the accessibility, like. Um, if you open up an account at Dali, like fifty credits and like ten credits every month, have you have you bought credits? Uh, I actually I actually haven't used that. Um, so I was just uh, playing around uh, with that uh, on Canva. I um, ah, okay. don't really have too many use cases for that. <laughs> uh, 
I, I, I know like uh, years ago, uh, so I was also in the US uh, for a bit. Uh, I was studying yeah. there, I was uh, at Purdue and it was uh, at a hackathon in Nashville, Tennessee. That yeah. was at Vanderbilt University. It was very, very, very cool. Uh, but already there, like you could use APIs for uh, uh, for text summarization and all of that, uh, and so we could just like uh, like scrape text from somewhere, uh, like summarize it, uh, find good images for this, and like do do all this content generation basically with AI. So that was also possible already. Like when was that? Three years ago or so. Yeah. But it was much more limited than what we have now. And now. Everyone who wants to produce content, it's just got so much easier and it's just so much more powerful because it's more than just summarization or simple question answers. It's really, uh, yeah, just a lot of talking and talking and talking, uh, just way more powerful language models. Yeah, yeah, uh, especially language modeling definitely has been a, a big, had, has made a big leap. But do you know if it's like, I feel like you are very much uh, invested into the whole topic, especially when it actually comes to to models and uh, the whole structure and architecture of it. Um, so, 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 um, so when we saw each other, like uh, when we studied together, it was like three years ago, four years ago. Um, I was very much uh, into this, so I could uh, tell you all the technical details. But now about the new stuff, uh, I'm not so much into this anymore. Uh, so okay. I see kind of like what's going on in the big scope and uh, with the language model, it's just bigger transformer models now. And yep. they just, uh, uh, they also probably use data that is not uh, in the normal corpus. So I think there yeah. is like some uh, rumors that uh, ChatGPT is using some Twitter data that uh, really? I'm not sure if there's anything on the, uh, like uh, if that's like uh, how far this discussion is now, but uh, so they have this huge, uh, basically the whole internet and everything, and uh, they have like I think ChatGPT has something like twenty million parameters or twelve million parameters or a billion parameters. Yeah. Uh, but I think the actually interesting thing about this is that it's actually a way smaller model than GPT three is, and uh, but this is actually interesting that it actually works to some degree. It's uh, it's kind of like very conversational. It's not. I wouldn't say it's uh, yeah it's necessarily right always, but yeah. uh, but it looks like it's right even if it says yeah. you something that's plain wrong it yeah. uh, shows you that yeah and uh, there was an interesting paper I wrote uh, I read about that and uh, it basically showed that uh, there's some intuition uh, basically the model answers intuitively so if you yeah. give it some examples uh, about exponential growth for example so. Let's say um, something grows exponentially, so it uh, doubles every every day. Uh, and after the first day, you have two. After the second, you have four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128, and 256. For example, roses uh, in your garden. Yeah. Uh, and it would tell you, like, okay, 256 after eight days. Uh, after how many days have you had... 128 uh, roses and the intuitive answer is four days and this is actually what it gives you uh so uh, there was examples like that uh, where it couldn't it would give you all the like structure and the code and you can try to do make it uh, uh make it write code uh give it uh, like your yeah. statistics homeworks uh yeah. coding questions 
and it would just answer it plain uh, wrong, oftentimes. Uh, but most of it is, it looks very sophisticated. It looks very sophisticated. And if you're not uh, looking into the details, it looks like you got the right answer. So mm. I think that's, yeah. uh, that's also what is so fascinating about this, that it actually gives you the wrong answer that looks right. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's super confident. Uh, I know if you saw, do you know, what's her name? Uh, Cassie uh, Kotsrukov. She's the chief decision no. scientist at Google. She mm-hmm. takes very like huge, huge LinkedIn uh, data scientist account, like also does like online classes and stuff. And she, I think like a week ago, she posted a text on um, ChatGPT, kind of like explaining how ChatGPT uh, is um, connected, like how ChatGPT is using GANs in the backend, basically, to to um, come up with the output, and uh, it goes like on and on and on, and gives also like all sorts of examples to explain it and give like the background. It was like really written in her style, and then when you actually go on the blog post at the end, it's kind of like, haha, um, you've been fooled, because and she shows you like how she created that whole post and um, with ChatGPT, uh, basically prompting ChatGPT to write how it, like what is its relation to GANs, which is like completely opposite of Transformers basically, or like another mm-hmm. um, form. And uh, in the style of Cassie, so basically using her words and her style. So it has to be trained on some LinkedIn data at least. And otherwise it couldn't really be that accurate. And then kind of like be loosely, like kind of like only partly sticking to the truth. So kind of like by saying that it wrote this really logical, it explained GANs perfectly um, and kind of like how ChatGPT would use GANs um, to come up with the output and everything. But obviously it's wrong. I mean, it's name transform. It's in the name um, that it uses transformers. Uh, but uh, that's just how confident it can sound like uh, when you just put ask it about two relations, how things relate to. And every expert obviously would have said, uh, it doesn't have any relation to to guns because it just doesn't use it. it and then would have gotten on with uh, how it uses transformers. And uh, but in that way, it actually illustrated quite nicely how wrong, how confidently wrong it still is in a lot of ways. Uh, it's kind of scary, especially when so much we read online. Right, is just sounds nice, and you kind of believe it, yeah. and even if you think it's wrong like it might still stick with you so that's yeah, uh, the, yeah it's 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 certainly uh there's certainly a few things to think about here so i think the practical side at the moment for all the people who want to write content who want to publish a lot of content uh one thing is uh if you don't want something that's generic uh you have to prompt it a lot so it's a lot about prompt engineering mm-hmm. and you can not just like be um one second sorry i'm like having a bit of a cough here also, when you talk about audio, I would. Uh, can you move your your mic- microphone a little bit? Oh yeah, further down. Um, it's a bit overcorrecting. Okay, 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 okay. So I hope it's better here. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah, great. Uh, so uh, what I want to say is, I think uh, with all of this content creation that we see now, and I think this is uh, what this is mostly about at the moment. Um, also, information retrieval and all of that, but it's kind of weak with 
this, so it's not mm. a huge business case yet, maybe. Um, but with all of this, uh, it's lo a lot of prompt engineering. You have to really, basically, the more context you give it, the less generic it is, the better it is. Um, so it basically tells you what you wanted to tell uh, just in a very nice uh, way. And uh, it doesn't really uh, add too much information that shouldn't be in there. So you still have to know what you want to write about. And otherwise, yeah. you just uh, create generic content. And uh, Google is punishing that a lot. Uh. Or they want to punish that a lot. So uh, for all the bloggers, that's already what they are very much worried about. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, that, that's actually, oh, yeah, there's always going to be a correction measure. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, because it's not uh, original content. Yeah. So it doesn't add anything to the whole internet, to all of the content we have in the world. Yeah. It just basically takes this and uh, repackages it. Yeah. Okay, one second. I'm so sorry. Um, I'm, <laughs> I'm completely, I'm completely <laughs> uh, scratchy. <laughs> I'm completely scratchy here. Uh, I just got my meds uh, from uh, from the pharmacy before, so uh, I would take this before uh, before I will not be able to talk anymore. But uh, maybe in the meantime, uh, you can tell me actually uh, how is it uh, in your degree now, in your master program? Like, what are you talking about now, like right now? Mm. What's the chances you see for the future in education and data science? Mm. Yeah, I hope. Uh... <coughs> I hope in uh, I actually hope in a year from now or even in a quarter from now um, I'm gonna listen to this and think like huh I had a completely wrong image of it right now because obviously it's been only a couple of months right. three months but uh, I'm I'm still gonna try my best so I'm primarily focusing on learning so I want to understand how humans learn how we can measure that and how we can improve it and support it. So uh, mainly outside of formal education, so like lifelong learning um, on different levels. Um, but generally, obviously, also getting some, some insights into the education space in general. So the, the program is called Education Data Science. So it has like those two big components, let's say. So one side, like the educational foundation, and on the other hand, just um, hard computer science um, so for example, next quarter, I'm going to take, um, deep learning, uh, for natural language processing with Chris Manning. It's like one of the leading, um, researchers in the field. And, uh, we actually have to work on, um, creating your own models using a transformer as like really strong, really strong project, uh, work-based. So that's going to be really exciting. And generally you just, you look at all kinds of computational methods. So it's it's pretty up to you, like how you build your curriculum. Um, as I said, I'm focusing on learning. So everything I feel like that relates to that or can actually be utilized for applications. Um, so especially um, natural language processing, but uh, also all kinds of other things, uh, policy making, lots of uh, regressions, for example, and but also a lot of experiment design um to to actually discover effects of certain measures so there's all there's all sorts of stuff um like my my view on education has changed 
quite a bit, I would say, um, especially like now seeing how much is being done on like a global level, kind of like every country battling, fighting a different battle though. Um, so do you, see, do you see there's like countries fighting for their education or do you see other big players there uh, that contribute something and that uh, want to win like in EduTech or something? Mm. Mainly, mainly countries, um, mainly countries and a lot of NGOs, uh, some startups and the point regarding the ad tech industry. So I don't have many touch points apart from the people who I know work in ad tech, worked in ad tech, um, have some relation to it, but, uh, it's, I would say it's still early. Um, a lot of the attack, the, the big attack wave has happened during COVID, like the the user numbers, especially for Microsoft's attack suit and uh, Google have searched. Um, uh, so, so which one you say is, you say it's not like Udemy and even more or Coursera, but it's actually uh, courses by uh, oh, Microsoft so, okay. Google or? Maybe, maybe we have uh, to, maybe we have to distinguish. Um, so we have... Okay, so the Udemy Coursera is like MOOCs, so massive yeah. open online courses. Uh, so that's one space. I feel that, I mean, it's been going on for quite a long time. I honestly don't yeah, know absolutely. how different their numbers are or how much the numbers changed during COVID. But generally, I think their main users have been people who are like already academics. We're just using, uh, but but it feels like every uh, every university during COVID actually mm -hmm. became a MOOC provider. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot so of them. it's, it's basically they just uh, they just did what all of them are doing, just worse. Oh, that's like how it felt. Mm, yeah, yeah. And um, so, in in a lot of senses, they just published all their um, all their classes uh, online. I mean, obviously, you're not taking the projects away from it because you have no one who actually gives you feedback and edits it. You're also not taking like the community of yeah. practice community of learners yeah, exactly uh, exactly this uh, like the social aspect but yeah. uh, is not quite there yet uh, so that's uh, i think a big part of education that you actually have someone who's uh, like together with you in this and you get feedback and you're motivated by group you uh, but exact but this is also exactly what was taken away a bit by not going to class anymore yeah. and actually having everything online so that's why i basically said they're kind of like bec uh, they became the MOOCs. Uh, <laughs> and so that uh, expanded quite a bit. Yeah, I think they also realized that. Um, I think they realized that if they don't have a physical element, they are losing not only a lot of appeal, but also a lot of effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's very different here in Austria because uh, education in general is free, so it's subsidized. Yeah. So, um, so uh, MOOCs are not really like such a great alternative because basically... Yeah. Universities are free, the online courses are basically free, and then you can basically decide to get a degree, to get the certificate, to get the stamp that you uh, the grades uh, or not. Yeah. Uh, but uh, how's in the US? How's it in the US? Uh, because uh, like education is extraordinarily expensive for the individual. There was some reliefs now, but uh, I think that doesn't change much. And on the relief. I don't think will make a big difference. Um, generally, you're having a hard time um, summarizing that 
in in one big thing because there are just so many different elements to it. Uh, I can tell you that since COVID, or at least the year before, I don't know the admissions number for this year, obviously, but the years, bef- the two years, um, the last two years, the admission numbers have, or the application numbers have been up, like they've been record highs, uh, especially yeah. professional degrees. Um, so I think all the MBA programs had like a huge wave of applications. Um, also because in 2020, so many people did not apply. So in 2021 and 2022, um, so much more people, uh, you kind of like at this, like they were just waiting for, for the worst yeah, to be and then mm-hmm. try it. And also a lot of people lost their jobs or the industry changed or all that kind of stuff. So they thought, okay, maybe now is a good time to, to go into a higher education um, and wait until the, the storm is over, um, learn something new, see what the world looks like afterwards. Uh, so that, that was definitely an effect. Uh, I honestly don't think schools really and universities have like a, took like a big negative effect away from it. At least I don't think it's reflected in the data yet. Maybe, the, I mean, there's a huge discussion. There's like online learning, how effective is it? Because you had like this huge natural experiment, but, uh, I don't think they feel like there's enough pressure that they have to change. And I uh, also don't think that the data is pointing towards more mm. online and more MOOC learning. Um, at least with that, there's like a big counter argument against it. Um, most mm-hmm. MOOC users are educated. So you actually don't help the access of like the minorities they're trying to support, which they can much better support, or at least that's the argument, by subsidizing the education. So for example, the UC, the uh, UC system, University of California system, um, which includes like some of the best universities in the US is heavily um, helping minority group students to finance their their studies up to like full right um, if you hit certain criteria for example that your your family doesn't have enough income or that you're belong to a certain class so there's uh, there's so much done there I feel like they might just increase that instead of just throwing out free education for everyone um, because that if, if you only rely on self-motivation um, may, probably a lot of homes that are just further away where education is not as important within the family structure or the family um, identity, it, they might just um, be left behind. So you think uh, with all the MOOCs, uh, that's basically the problem that uh, people ca- don't have the structure, they don't know, uh, don't have the environment. Uh, so it's uh, mostly users who are actually already educated that are using them. And that's why this doesn't work so well. I think it's a problem MOOCs have. Or I don't mm-hmm. I don't think so. It's what I read. I personally haven't yeah, yeah. done any MOOC research. Um, especially what is being pointed towards is this concept of self-regulated learning, SRL. It's like the, the ability to know how well you're doing and if you make mistakes how you can correct them how you can which other sources of information can you use apart from like the main um, source so for example if you have like a kid in school 
are they, if they make a mistake, do they just try it again themselves? Are they going to use the computer and look up some YouTube videos? Are they going to ask a peer? Are they going to ask a parent? Are they going to ask the teaching assistant or the teacher? Um, all those things and also like how your motivation plays into it and everything. And that there is a strong correlation between your SRL skills and how long you actually participated in formal education. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of people who pushed for online classes and saw it as the solution that everyone has now access to it and that solves the problem of people not gaining the education level they want to or that would be optimal for them, uh, did not account for that learning itself is something you have to learn. Uh, and yeah. the, it's, it's really hard to, or at least I haven't seen a great solution that resolves that, that does not involve actually going to school or university. Well, I think, I think that's also a drive thing. So I think uh, at the moment uh, you can make the argument that people, if they have to drive, uh, they can just sit down at their computer or at uh, something if they have a device yeah. and uh, do that if they can uh, find the time uh, and they will be able to educate themselves and yeah. uh, the cost and uh, the barriers to entry are just so low now that yeah. this is actually very feasible. Yeah. Uh, so uh, basically, uh, this is, I think this is a huge political thing where it's like, yes, um, uh, we have minorities. Uh, and then the question is, uh, on the individual basis, you have the chance. Uh, but the environment just makes it very hard to break out of this uh, thinking and to actually act differently than everyone else around you. And I think yeah. that's one of the uh, one of the harder things, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, so also, like, I came where I applied to the program with the thought of, okay, there's probably going to be a ton of research lying around how you can actually disrupt education, how you can make mm. learning. 10x, 100x more efficient, how we can solve all those problems. And it's just not applied because there's no connects between research and industry. And I've came to discover in the, like, quite quickly that only a small part of that assumption is true. So there definitely is a gap between researchers and industry. There's very, or only like point for point connection between those two, collaboration between those two, usually just like regarding one person, one research team, one team within a university, maybe a department for like a certain amount of time. But overall, there is a big disconnect. But generally, there's not all those gold nuggets just lying around waiting to be implemented. Uh, Would be nice. Uh, But uh, but that doesn't mean there isn't a lot of stuff that is... But do you think this also might have to do a bit with that we basically just want to iterate. So uh, we have a structure already how education works and you cannot just disrupt it and be like, okay, I'm taking a thousand children here and they will not go to school. I will have a totally different way of educating them. And the government cannot tell me anything about uh, how I'm doing it. I think it's just like very hard to be like, just like experiment on little human beings and uh, be like, we just throw everything away that we already know. And we just try to restructure it. And then we make a thousand different experiments with a thousand children each. And there's a million children. 
that uh, where we try a thousand different ways and uh, some of them will work. Um, I think it's just also hard to actually like innovate uh, here because uh, it's you cannot be too radical. Um, uh, there are structures that uh, you are bound to, to some degree at least. Yeah, uh, certainly. And what also makes it hard to generalize is that the structures are different in every country. And uh, we, or the, so I, before, before starting my undergrad, I was in school politics for a while. And so I saw the Austrian school system from like different sites. And then also did like some workshop instructor working in high schools, um, also working in universities and with vocational students, but also seeing in high school and kind of being on the other side of the classroom. And um, I thought the effects, or there are like generally in, it's like the Western world, classrooms kind of look the same, right? You have a teacher in the front, you have a bunch of tables and seats. And you have students sitting on it and listening to the teacher. Sometimes it's more interactive. Sometimes it's just not. Um, but what you don't see and what isn't obvious is all the cognitive processes that are going on that are having a huge impact. Uh, like The cognitive processes, uh, like uh, when it comes to each individual student or the teacher? Uh, both um, and even more like there are so many effects that are culturally uh, that are playing into it that it's really hard to just take the student as a random student and the teacher as a random teacher and uh, just it, take them as as a proxy for everyone else because there are so many things like culture of communication for example like different languages mm -hmm. communicate differently yeah. there are power structures hierarchies how is communicated how likely is it in that culture that someone is gonna um like have like a say something contribute yeah. how how common is it that uh, that a student contributes in that way how much is discussion valued and allowed um but then also the relation that or the effect that your family's education level has is not only in terms of okay your parents might be a role model so how where you draw the line basically uh or raised or have your bar located but it's also how you grew up like the, the conversations you had with your parents like how are discussions structured how much is how much motivation or how much emphasis is put on intellectual exchange, how important is learning, not in terms of sitting down and reading a book, but how important is learning in terms of just being curious, how is curiosity displayed in your family and the people around you, um, just like in the general neighborhood. And that's different in every, in every, like even within the same income gap around the world, yeah. it's different from culture. But, but, but uh, also what you just said, like uh, maybe a minute or two ago was all about, okay, we have, we have students uh, and they're sitting in a classroom. It's multiple mm -hmm. students, one teacher, and uh, they're sitting there. Then they can ask more or less questions. They will be uh, basically spoken to uh, a lot of the time. And this is kind of how we structure it. And if we have this as a starting point and 
then we're trying how to like add to this and that's basically the way we're starting so that's what i meant like uh, maybe there's uh, other ways where we maybe can learn from really uh, exceptional examples of uh, or like on the edges on people who uh, were really freakish about uh, how they were maybe obsessed with understanding something yeah. uh, or they were actually made obsessed. I think there's, uh, I usually know there was uh, uh, in the Soviet Union, there was, uh, I think it was uh, this one uh, uh, one guy who uh, found a woman and he was like, okay, we have to marry and we will raise uh, genius children. Uh, and he uh, taught all three of his daughters to become a very, very proficient uh, in chess. I think two of them were grandmasters or something like that. Uh, I think you know that story. So it seems like there's those edge cases uh, where things are quite possible, uh, but they are structured very differently. And maybe it's also just for, uh, like, uh, it's it's very narrow when uh, uh, those examples, you know. Yeah, um, to, to the point of the classic frontal classroom, uh, that is the default in, in most countries, in most schools. Um, but you can, you can find a lot of experiments around it, especially you, you even have them in Austria. They're just rare, but yeah. especially in the US, you have so many privately funded schools who are trying different concepts. Yeah. Uh, and some of them are having amazing results. Some of them are having kind of the same results. Some, uh, but it's it's also always really hard to point towards one specific teaching method if everything is kind of different because it's not a it's a, not a randomized controlled experiment. If you ask a lot of people to go there, uh, there is just to give you like a more concrete and more also like high tech example. There is a university, I don't know if you have heard of it, it's called Minerva. I haven't. It's, it's a, they call themselves, I think, I believe they call themselves a startup uh, university. Mm -hmm. They are giving out degrees or granting degrees for, I believe it's three-year programs. They are fully, so the, the way it works is they have a set of different programs, but they only admit uh, like, like 40 people per program or 30 people and they don't have a physical university everything is online and you do every semester in a different city so or maybe it, it, that it sounds amazing it's actually eight different locations as far as i know so you're like uh actually a classmate of mine like a one guy from my program Anvit, he's in the, he, he did his undergrad there, I believe, in economics and uh, was like one semester in Buenos Aires, one semester in Seoul, one semester in Berlin. Uh, I think he lost two semesters in between because of COVID. But so he was all over and everything is online and everything is very untraditional because they don't do tests. Your grades are evaluated by uh, your contribution. So so two parts, essays. So everything is like essay-based and project-based. Um, and the other part is your contribution in the classroom sessions. So everyone is online, everyone's sitting in front of the camera, everything has, everyone has their microphone on. And mm -hmm. your discussion, your contributions, the words you use, the sentences you use are being 
automatically evaluated. I believe in the end, someone's going to look over it, but they, they're using an automated process to assess how deep you understand the concept, how much you have actually studied it, and they're trying to evaluate that by, by the words you're using. And then uh, this is a big chunk of your grade. Uh, I'll definitely have Anvid on at some point as well on the podcast. He, he can explain it much better than I can. But uh, mm-hmm. so that's, that's basically the gist. And it's, it's even more, it's not only that uh, they evaluate it, there is a huge emphasis on that everyone is speaking. So for example, you have like, I don't know, I think it's like a yellow and a green light and maybe it must be three lights because uh, it indicates the instructor, the lecturer, how much the person has been speaking, kind of like if they have a green light, they've been in the optimal range. If they have a yellow light, they have not talked enough. And if they're, let's say, in a blue light, they should be they, they should be instructed to speak a little less because they're taking away all the speaking time from other people. <laughs> and that, that's a very interesting concept um, because it changes the way we, we do education uh, because you, you can't have a room of 20 people and evaluate every word they're saying. That just doesn't work. Uh, you might have classes where a professor will give you, um, how do you say, like your contribution, your class contribution, uh, points, or maybe count how many, how often you raised your hand. But it's really hard to assess, like formally assess how, <laughs> uh, like quantitatively assess. Yeah, um, I, but I think this is generally a problem that we are basically looking for those. Uh, we have those very weak proxies uh, that we're using. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, okay, how much has someone speaking uh, spoken? Uh, that's very nice. Um, doesn't really tell you much about uh, how well they understand the concept and how well they could actually use what they've learned uh, to solve a real problem, yeah. which is kind of the whole uh, point of this. Or maybe do some research or uh, and actually contribute uh, with uh, further research uh, to uh, their academic colleagues. Yeah. Um, so I think. Uh, most of that is uh, also the uh, how we how we are uh, how we're studying uh, how in university it's mostly for convenience. So uh, I think uh, if you know Paul Graham, I think he was talking. Uh, you know him from Y Combinator. He was talking about how schools are basically prisons to keep uh, children uh, in there while the parents are in, at work. And I think that uh, is uh, very much uh, true. Of course. Um, they have to be. Uh, they cannot leave. Uh, they have yeah. to be there while the parents uh, are have to do their stuff. Yeah. And um, then we are, of course, in this constraint. Um, of course, we can only have a certain amount of teachers for every child. Uh, a, a certain, uh, we have to have a lot of uh, children for every teacher because otherwise uh, the economics don't work out. Yeah. Uh, and. Uh, and uh, but there's some uh, basic flaws when like uh, those things are going to change. For example, um, it wasn't really so much possible to actually uh, have education that is not just talking, talking, talk. Uh, like that, uh, where if uh, the teacher is talking uh, and uh, telling uh, the students about um, something they should uh, learn. Um, we can record this now and uh, we have enough devices. Everyone has devices now where this is basically uh, uh, not um, necessary anymore. So we can just uh, use those recordings. And uh, 
feedback would be much more useful. Uh, what you also said before, um, self-regulated learning is hard. Uh, so how can you actually get feedback and from uh, what are you doing good, what are you doing bad, and uh, maybe actually also have some uh, have a goal with that. And then also we have some other uh, other things in education uh, that are very practical. For example, education is mostly the same for everyone. Uh, for uh, it doesn't really matter how good you are. You continue to your next uh, year of school, to your next class, even if you haven't fully grasped the concept yet. Some kids are way too fast and they're already bored. Yeah. Uh, they might uh, skip classes then. Some other kids are, need uh, more time for that. And uh, it doesn't really add up because, uh, because uh, it's just you... you um, you're trying to make it somehow work for everyone, but it doesn't. Uh, it works for basically no one then uh, really well. And I, I think uh, technology can uh, at least uh, at least has the potential now to change that. Um, I think uh, with the MOOCs, that's the first wave. It's very simple. If you just say, well, we can record videos, uh, we can just show them. Everyone can watch at their own pace and uh, we will give them some feedback on that, if possible. Uh, I think that's a great start, but uh, we talked about ChatGPT before, or those language models. And if we really think about them encoding most of the world's knowledge, basically, uh, why is it not possible uh, to basically use reinforcement learning to understand what a student can do, cannot do, um, to uh, basically have an assessment of uh, of their uh, of their knowledge um, to understand what goals they have and then actually to uh, prompt them with questions with problems uh, with little like nuggets of information they need to solve a problem uh, I don't see how this is not possible and how this is not quite uh, straightforward if there's not so much like if if there would be no schools right now if you would have to think about something from scratch because all the schools would not exist tomorrow anymore. Like, what would you do? Would you, how would you build an educational system? And I think we already have a lot of the technology uh, out there to uh, basically have uh, like AI teaching us about uh, basic concepts, us understanding them, solving problems with it, doing something interesting. And uh, we have examples of actually people being addicted to technology. Um, we saw how social media shaped us uh, over the last decade uh, or almost two decades now with Facebook 2004 and MySpace before that. Uh, I think we saw that uh, people can get addicted by content and they can really understand that. Um, they're getting into a flow which is uh, like very hypnotic and I don't see how this is not possible uh, with education, especially because we see like children, they are very... They want to learn everything. They're like sponges. And uh, then we're taking it just away by putting them into their little school prisons and uh, letting everyone do the same and just compete against each other instead of collaboratively like working together on solving problems and just getting better and doing more. And I think we are very, very restricted uh, in our current structures and how we're thinking about how iteratively we want to like change uh, this. 
I get I can hear a lot of like the the criticism and uh, a lot of it it's uh there are, there are a lot of valid points where I feel the whole technology will significantly improve education topic is or approach is missing a big point is everything that is not content related so access to content does not equal um, a well-developed and knowledgeable human being. And uh, so I see, of course, that there's to online courses. There's uh, there's surely like um, the social aspect missing in this one, um, which can which can be engineered probably uh, to some degree. How so? Uh, but well, so uh, there's a lot of, uh, so I think every MOOC course is trying that, that they're trying to put uh, students together and make them interact. Mm -hmm. And uh, the question is now, how can you actually really do that? So how do you find people who are interested in the same things? Mm -hmm. How do you put them together, uh, make them interact with each other, know each other, uh, maybe be friends with each other? And if you make this happen, and I think we have enough connectivity in this world that uh, we find someone who, who we can see as a friend, who we want to study with, who we want to grow with. Um, so uh, this can be maybe someone in your local area, or this can be someone uh, that you meet uh, maybe with virtual reality or just in a chat group. But I think there's enough examples uh, of where this already works, if it's, uh, if it's a Reddit or wherever, where people feel like they're doing something together and uh, they know each other to some degree. This is where it gets dangerous because we think it is an close enough replacement for the processes that that are happening when you have people together in a room um, interacting. But mm. we have almost no means of measuring what exactly is happening. And that's why there's so much conservatism within education. And uh, But on the other hand, kind of like blind trust into, into tech. It's like very, very controversial depending on whom you, whom you talk to. But uh, especially like with uh, like the established education research community, they're very very tech skeptic in a way because you you don't have the means of measuring what is happening in a human brain. Like there's still so much done in neuroscience just to understand how we react to other people around us, what processes are happening when we when we see a face, when we see certain things. And that all plays into how we understand the world, how we understand communication, how we understand, how we learn, how uh, we process information. And uh, by completely removing that and just being like, okay, the content and like the interaction in the chat room and seeing someone on the screen is sufficient. Well, 
I feel like you can offer that to people and maybe a lot of people are going to jump on that and actually use it. But it's going to be really hard to prove in any way that this justifies replacing the current structure. And uh, don't get me wrong, I'm not a fan of how education is done these days. I feel like there's a lot left on the table, uh, especially when it comes to how hard uh, or how sometimes how little teachers are actually getting to teach when you focus on like um, the first 12 years of education and where you actually have like a teacher responsible for class instead of like more lecture um, because there's just so many other things to do so you actually don't even get to do content and I feel like there are so many so many um, things that are just not working out and that haven't worked out um, since uh, school ha- schools have been established. So uh, I, I, I see it also as very thing. spooky. I also see it as very spooky. School I don't know if you uh, no the the like the fake social interactions. So mm. uh, for me, it's very important to meet people in uh, yeah. in person. I'm a very big proponent of that. Um, I'm one of the very conservative conservative people when it comes to like. Uh, remote work. Uh, I don't really yeah. like that. I want everyone to be in a room, uh, be together there, think about things together, bond with each other. I think that's uh, very important to do something okay. together to create a culture. Um, of course, you can have some uh, relationships also over the internet. Uh, you can you can do that, but it will not be the same level as if you have someone in person. And after you finish your work, you go together for a beer. Uh, and you eat uh, lunch together or dinner, and uh, you just uh, you just know each other. You talk about other stuff also. So I think uh, I'm a, I'm a very big proponent about that. Uh, just still, um, I I see this uh, I see this trend towards uh, making everything just more immersive. Uh, I saw it. Uh, I was in Paris uh, this year in June at the Viva Technology Conference. There was uh, I saw what they are doing at Meta. There, they are uh, they are basically trying to bring VR to a whole new level. I'm not sure how far they will get with that, but uh, everything looks almost really very immersive already. Uh, it's not just like with you now we we see each other, but it's like okay, I see you on the screen, but it's not a super super immersive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's better than a phone call for sure, but it's not super immersive, but then, if you're in the VR, in VR, you can already like you can high five your uh, uh, your, your peers on the table, and you can make uh, just like uh, go together to different places, uh, go to the beach, and it all looks. I mean, it looks very real, and it's uh, it's already a next step, and uh, very. Uh, so, one of my biggest fears is that we are getting lost in all of this social media and. Mm-hmm. Uh, this just becoming more and more immersive because companies just have a huge incentive to to uh, get our attention and get the advertising dollars out of us uh, or just uh, buy our uh, opinions uh, and attention on whatever uh, cause. So I'm very, uh, I think this is very, very spooky. So that's also why I'm, yeah, uh, not go, wanting to go full in on uh, on being uh, making this too immersive and uh, yeah. 
and uh, too much out of like put it too much into virtual reality instead of the real reality. So I think okay. it's kind of spooky. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's uh, there's. I don't know, I feel like it's especially crazy considering that we're at large talking about children. Um, we're at large talking about putting six-year-old, eight-year-olds, 12-year-olds, 15-year-olds um, into a completely new situation that we just don't have a lot of information on, especially if it's super new. Um, so I feel like the... Maybe what I would suggest, I think that's what I would suggest, that testing, the amount of testing, the amount of effort, resources we put into experimenting and actually getting a lot of data should be emphasized and especially focused on. Like there should be a lot of st that stuff being done. Um, so you actually have the information you need to to implement things to run uh, run real big experiments with a lot of people but you can you can start in in a lot of in a lot of different ways and uh, but to be really sure not to have like a situation um like during covid when every class just i mean it was unfortunate in a lot of ways um the classes just had to be held online and no one was really ready for it, but also the technology wasn't really ready. And uh, in a lot of ways, there were concepts being tried out um, where you had issues on the privacy side, but you also had issues like just on the, the actually getting the, creating the value, the, the learning um, that uh, was attempted to. And there was a lot of, especially like in the second year, a lot of companies that kind of emerged that were like, hey, we have the solution to your problem. But uh, it was only kind of like a half fix. It was nice enough to sell, but it was actually not good enough to, to solve the problem. And that that is happening increasingly, that's scary. Um, that that is also happening outside of an emerging situation where a private school just might implement things that are just not fully tested yet, uh, that it are, I mean, there are so many shady people in business, let's be honest. I mean, we're just facing like one of the biggest financial scandals um, the world has ever seen with like some now 30-year-old um, scamming a lot of people out of uh, a lot of money and also some of the smartest people in the world and some of the biggest investors out of the money. Um, so it's only fair to assume that there are a lot of people in the educational space who are also there just to scam people out of the money. And uh, that's why I feel like why now and having seen and having heard uh, about a lot of companies who are doing stuff and are doing also very disruptive things, it's not a totally bad thing that things are moving slowly. Um, I would just like to increase the, the speed of the testing and actually getting the data. I feel there is not enough done in experimenting with uh, with new technology, and there well, is well, too well, much implementation. But that's a cultural that's a cultural thing. If you it want is. to play, de uh, it's a cultural thing. If you want to play defense all the time, and then you're like, yes, I would like things to evolve faster, but we cannot uh, do it if it's not fully tested and. Uh, so we are basically trying to avoid any damage whatsoever uh, because we want to play it safe. Um, then we just have to wait for the next crisis um, that will certainly emerge uh, to just kick our butts. And uh, then you don't have to wait, the right? activation energy is so low that everything works. 
like you can you can always do like I'm I'm a big fan of of school experiments um like school experiment in, in yes. Austria um you have obviously it's not a perfect randomized experiment but, but, but if you think bias. about what happened what happened if you think about what happened during covid um yeah. there's no way we would be at the point we are right now with education uh where we understand and we can also communicate differently um if it wouldn't have been for this crisis and so no one was prepared for actually doing it this way what has changed in terms of big scale education just uh, i think uh so what we said before it's like moving into moocs and uh, basically i think the value of education has kind of like it it shows that uh, it's n- uh, just uh, the building where a teacher is teaching in front of a class is not uh, that's not the real value anymore because there can be recordings and it's actually not so important to be there and it's it's just like it changed the structure a bit but on a big scale it just moved us uh, further down the same line that's at least how it feels like hmm. I, like uh, as I said, I would have to really look into the data in terms of how many more like online courses are being used. Like what are, what is actually the user data and like all those big platforms and university platforms to actually like I I would yeah. be surprised um, like if the like in my current understanding there hasn't been a huge shift anywhere. Since the pandemic, a lot of things are moving back now. Like definitely technology adoption in terms of if a teacher is sick, if a teacher is absent, like all those kinds of things where you can compensate now better with, for example, recording a class or the teacher might have already classes recorded from the year before that they can supply. Um, I think there are much more exper- more experiments happening now with flipping classrooms, kind of like Khan Academy approach, sending, giving the, the students access to math tutorials, all kinds of classes, and then spending the class time to work on homework, to work on the things they didn't understand. I mean, stuff like mm-hmm. that. I, okay, I, so that's the flipping classes. So actually more of the feedback coaching. Yeah. Uh, doing the homework. Uh, that I think sense. that was the big mission that, uh, that Khan Academy had. I know it re- didn't yeah. never really hit German-speaking space. I also don't think there's much... Um, there haven't been any German uh, versions of that. But uh, in the U.S., like talking to U.S. students that were around, that were in middle school and high school and Khan Academy launched, apparently was huge. Like the, it was a big thing that from one day to the other, from one year to the other, you had all those math tutorials online you could use for your SAT prep, et cetera, et cetera. But even they, although the numbers are crazy good like the the amount of students that are using it and the feedback they're getting even they now are looking at the space differently because they thought they could create this different school system where everyone would just learn at home and it would only be tutoring yeah. in the classroom um but didn't fully work out uh, i only read the old book of salman khan that he wrote, like, I don't know, it was 2, 14, 16. Uh, apparently now his interviews are a lot different. 
and the realizations he's had, uh, especially when it comes to the topic of self-regulated learning, etc. But um, I mean, those are very positive uh, changes. Like honestly, having access to all the content from your class, like I'm super happy whenever I can uh, go into depth into things that I might not have grasped. Because let's be honest, sitting in a classroom eight hours a day or even just six hours a day, you're never going to catch everything. I mean, it's, uh, it's mm. not, uh, not a fair assumption to make either. Uh, so what's your, what's your take actually on, uh, on flow and getting into flow uh, in the classroom? Because it's certainly possible, um, uh, I would say... Uh, if we are on our phones and we think this five minutes have passed, but it's half an hour. And I think it's also certainly possible to go into flow if you're working on a project, you're very interested, maybe you have a deadline and uh, the challenge just meets your, uh, meets uh, uh, what you can do. And it's just very interesting and you can uh, just be there and you don't really feel the effort and it just flows and uh, you learn quite fast. Honestly, it's totally real uh, and it's totally possible to create that just a range of experiences I had just taking higher education, just taking how differently I learned during my bachelor's and now my master's. Like even within VU, first three years bachelor business, then I did like the information systems on top of it and the Last classes I took in business, so basically there was no time in between. I just had a complete different approach to things, a complete different focus, a complete different level of absorption that I had with the information system classes, especially with the data science classes. I mean, um, the content, just like the motivation I had, like the different mindset I had because it was not to earn a degree, it was actually just to learn and to expand my knowledge. It made the world difference. Like, there are so few classes I hold in high regards that I had during um, my bachelor's in business because most of them were just like the first one and a half years are just, uh, we actually don't want as many students, so let's kick them all out and uh, yeah. give you any support. We just want you to read that book and take the multiple choice test and that's it. Um, and then afterwards... Um, it's not really that personalized either. And often you just feel like they're only lecturing for whatever reason. Um, and I mean, same stays true in a lot of sense with the, with the information systems classes, but just my approach was so different that I was like, okay, I'm here voluntarily. Like I'm not taking yeah. any paper from that. It's just the main thing is me absorbing as much information as possible. I was like, much more focused. I was much easier to get homeworks done. It was much easier to get projects done. Although the amount of stuff I learned, um, like the amount that was uh, expected, especially at technical classes, never coded before, um, yeah. it took me much more time, but uh, I was just much more willing to do so. And uh, that was like a huge difference. Or now, I mean, now I'm back, university, Masters are different than bachelor's. Stanford is definitely a completely different learning environment than a lot of other schools. But there is no... So what difference do you see in like methodology or is it the environment or what's the difference you would say so far for you now? All of it, really. Uh, so the... And the, this is only going to be 
the, the things I'm mentioning now is only going to be part of it. And uh, next year I will have a much more complete picture, I hope. But lecturers, for example, are really there because they want to lecture and they enjoy lecturing. Uh, there is a strong feedback mechanism as far as I understand. Um, so if you don't get good valuation, um, you just don't. Your, your class is just not going to stay there for long. Um, so there's a, a high incentive of creating a lot of value. And especially because people are paying and especially because it's grad school, uh, if you as a lecturer don't deliver in terms of actual knowledge, uh, people are going to be writing bad reviews. Uh, there's a lot of, like the, the real bad reviews that I'm reading is not classes are too hard or they're expecting too much. Yeah. Bad reviews are the teacher was not prepared enough. Um, they were not, they were talking just about a lot of experience, but not really about practical content we could take away. And we did not get enough feedback on projects. It was not project-based enough. It was way too theoretical, all that kind of stuff. Or sometimes, okay, the lecture is too long. We should have done more breaks. But there is never like, okay, there is a general disinterest of the teacher um, or, oh, wow, why are there uh, 300 people in a room um, when there only should be probably 30 yeah, when it comes down to the, to the actual style of the lecture? So all those issues, like it's a completely different mindset when it comes to yeah. students. And yeah, it's, it's when people want to, be, want to actually be there. I yeah. think uh, we, we both experienced that being at VU together. Um, uh, there surely was a lot of cool people also there, but um, it's, uh, it's school is free in Austria. Um, yeah. especially if you study business, it's, uh, it's something that everyone can study. If you don't know what you're doing, maybe business is something where you cannot go too wrong. Um, so, uh, so that was certainly, uh, very different. So for me, it was oftentimes we also had, uh, reviews of the professors and, uh, oftentimes I realized if you go for the ones that are rated the worst, you actually get the best ones. <laughs> it was actually yeah. this way because... Yeah. They were like, oh, this class is too hard. They're doing too much. Uh, I want to do less. And then it's like, oh, this, this teacher actually cares. And they actually uh, lecture in a way where you can uh, take a lot home. And they actually want to deliver to uh, a certain standard. And that was actually oftentimes, uh, those were the best learning experiences whatsoever. Yeah. And uh, that's, that's certainly very different um, uh, here, yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're like the, and as I said, the lecture is only one part. Um, but coming back to your question on flow, especially in the seminar style classes where there is a lot of interaction, where there is a lot of discussion, there were sessions where I felt that was in flow for almost the entire time, like two hour periods uh, where. <laughs> It just started and it ended. And in between was just a constant, interesting uh, level of, uh, of discourse. And that took a lot away from that. I'm definitely a person who also takes a lot away from that because I'm very easily participating in that sort um, when I'm not hesitant to ask if I, if I don't understand things, which makes it much easier for me to just keep on track and not fall out of the flow spectrum of too much or too little. So that has been, I want to say, not a completely new experience, but like it was just my first quarter, it's 10 weeks of actual classes. 
and the amount yeah, I experienced story. it in this short time was already more than I can say I collectively experienced in all the four years yeah. I, I had at Bibu. And that says a lot. I mean, it also says something about my own motivation, my own approach, like the topics I'm choosing, every class is hand-selected. I know kind of what I'm getting into. And there's a lot of preparation before every class to do about the topic that is actually happening and I'm taking it serious. So that definitely is a factor, but there are just so many other things to factor as well. So flow state is not only possible, it's also, um, um, it, it is possible and it's it's very desirable for me. But and it seems it seems to be very much about choice, um, uh, but choice, uh, your own personal growth, and the subsequent internal motivation that uh, helps you like just uh, be like, okay, that's what I'm doing. That's what I decided to do, and I will grow in this and I will get better. And I'm enjoying the process, and every day is actually new and exciting. And I'm not just waking up because I have to, but because I want to. And uh, there's new challenges and I'm awaiting them. And I think that's a very beautiful thing uh, to see also uh, that uh, you changed uh, also like this, uh, doing the information uh, systems uh, track then and yeah. now uh, doing something that you really enjoy doing. Yeah, no, definitely. Um... I think, I mean, my perception and my experience with Vu hasn't been, like, I'm not going to sing a love song about it, let's put it that way. Uh, but uh, it, it definitely shifted in the end with, with information systems, just because uh, I actually met much more professors who cared, because also it's just way smaller. Um, and especially in data science, I felt like they, they really care because they're kind of like this small tribe of technical people within Vu. Uh, that are trying to create value and pull people into their into their circle. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, then we are at the social circle again, and mm. just being part of a group where you belong yeah. and belonging. Uh, I mean, belonging is that, a huge that, that's thing. In there. I haven't looked into that um, in my studies yet, but that was something uh, very like a big researcher at Stanford uh, pointed me towards after like, she gave like a talk in an entrepreneurial seminar and I asked her afterwards which factor she would like point towards for me to, to look closer at because it has a huge impact on learning and effectiveness of learning. And she was like belonging. That's like also where mm. a lot of research is being done right now. Just like the feeling of belonging, whatever that means. Uh, there's so many layers to it is insanely important and has not even closely like not not even like not fully been explored uh, there is there's a lot more to discover there i'm really curious about that yeah i also have my own little story about uh how how learning felt for me and how i was i was a slow learner or fast learner and um so I had uh, something similar like you, like where you were like, okay, this I'm doing uh, on my own now. It's my choice. Uh, so I actually, so I went uh, in Austria and Vienna. We have those schools, they're called TATL. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a technical school and they take a bit longer than high school. And then you already have a, uh, have a specialization uh, as an engineer. For me, it was chemistry. And so I actually wanted to drop out of school when I was 18. 
and uh, so I didn't went uh, didn't go to school for something like three months uh, in a row, and uh, so uh, my my parents were crying. It was terrible. They were like, "What are you doing with your life, son? You're throwing your life away." And uh, that was actually very interesting. I was uh, was a bit of a rebel. I didn't really like school because it just felt more and more like a prison. Um, my parents both uh, don't have uh, like. Uh, college degrees, uh, it was not like, it didn't feel like this is for me. I wanted to, I, I didn't really uh, value education in the sense of that people who are educated are actually more capable. So, or uh, no more, I, I didn't I didn't really uh, associate uh, that uh, too much. Just felt like they're just in prison for longer instead of breaking free. And I, I was watching a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, like American YouTubers and uh, they were, a lot of them were like, well, they weren't like, you should drop out of high school, but you, it was like, hey, you should drop out of your job and you should start your own thing. And if you fail, you're young, it doesn't matter. So I was very much like, yeah, whatever. I would just do my own thing. Didn't work out so much because I was, uh, it was very hard just to, like just to be 18, do something on your own. Like uh, you basically, if you don't go to school, uh, what happens is you lose all your friends because all your friends are at school and they're like, what are you doing? And so uh, you're, uh, you have a lot few friends uh, in a very short period of time and then you're basically in a smaller and smaller bubble. So that didn't work out for me so well. But the interesting thing actually was that then, uh, so after a while I was like, what will I do with my life? Will I go back to school or not? I, uh, I wanted to like, I have every reason why I'm not going back to school, but eventually I actually decided to do that. And it wasn't, it was completely voluntarily. I didn't have to. So my parents also weren't like, oh, you have to do this or whatever. And so I actually went back to school. I already missed three months. I could have maybe made a year still and like graduated. Like I, I took, uh, I took some tests and some, uh, most classes and actually wrote some good grades. Uh, but from there, it was actually not about uh, doing it because I want to be good on the test. It was doing the classes because I was interested in learning something and actually becoming better as a person, understanding more. And this is when, uh, for me, how I view learning changed a lot uh, because I was like, now I'm doing it on my own. So I graduated school then. It was uh, a year later than I wanted it to be. Uh, but it was very nice. And then in university, I also, uh, because I had no... Uh, like I had no academics in my family. It was, I thought about it. Okay, this will be like, it's not like school anymore. So I would go there, I would study. I didn't even know that there were grades in university. Really, I was like completely clueless. I thought like, why do you need grades? Like, uh, I want, uh, you want to be an intellectual, you want to understand something, maybe write papers, uh, do projects, develop something. Um, so I had no idea what I was getting into, um, that I was basically getting back into school. Um, the good thing about it was at the beginning, we didn't have to go to classes. So I was feeling very free. It was my personal choice. Um, so I still went to uh, university after, uh, after, after school, actually, which was kind of like I didn't really think I would do that uh, three years prior. I didn't even think I would graduate school, uh, like high school. It's a bit different in high school, but this school. So that was, uh, that was very interesting. And so because I did it on my own, I didn't do it for anyone else. I didn't do it for grades, but I just wanted to learn, become more capable and actually understood the value of education and also learning on my own. And uh, that really helped me to be, uh, to get into 
uh, this feeling of, okay, I can actually learn. I can learn extraordinarily fast. Um, I, 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 I try to understand the things. It's not about uh, studying for a test and then it's about, uh, it's about something uh, that goes far beyond that. And I think that's what served me pretty well. Um, but I think uh, also with university of the time, um, it was uh, getting just more and more like class again and more like school and more like prison. So I think even though I had this uh, break uh, and this uh, shift from I do it for myself now, I think uh, it's uh, it still like draws you into feeling like in prison, and especially for me, who I'm like I'm like a person who uh, who doesn't want to be uh, captured somewhere and uh, put into um, a box or a house and be like you have to stay here and do your stuff. Uh, for me, that's like uh, I'm very sensible to that. So maybe I'm like a little biomarker for uh, for does this feel too much like a prison or can I actually do something here? Uh, in in an environment that is about growth and it's not about uh, like putting you in a current and you have to swim with all the other fish in the current. Yeah. So I think uh, that's also uh. something I can add here that this really helps uh, a lot if you uh, actually uh, do it voluntarily. Yeah. Well, honestly, it's uh, it's really great that you get to experience this early i mean i bet it was a really hard time uh yeah it was it was it was not so fun for my parents <laughs> for sure oh no i i bet uh but i mean when i met you at view i mean you were you were like studying like crazy um super in control of of uh, everything and like performing on the highest level so that's uh like you, you, you generally seem like you are very much taking taking things away, and like you, like hmm, how to put this? There are so many people there, especially at the YouTube University, like VU, where people just free, and it's expected for all for a lot of people from their homes to to go to university that just don't want to be there, and uh, exactly. you were a very stark contrast to that. Um, so it's actually really. Really cool to hear kind of like the origin story behind that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot I of mean, people just for, never experience For me, it's just like if you have this personal experience, uh, it's just very interesting. And you have your own take on uh, how maybe you could restructure that and actually make education better for people because mm. you experienced how it was feeling like a prison for 12 years or whatever. And uh, that there's so much potential wasted in... Uh, children of course young adults and it's just it's just a bit sad and if we could do more here and actually encourage people to follow what they want to do uh, that would be yeah. really great if we could find a way to uh, to really do that so, yeah. i see like when you when you say prison it really sounds the the physical space plays like a, a big role plays into that or is it more like the concept of having like a fixed schedule and those years being committed to it well the thing is it's not a choice so mm -hmm. if you go somewhere and you lock yourself in your room for three months but you have the keys mm -hmm. or you've 
gave them to another person uh, because he wanted them to lock you in. It's not a prison because it was your choice. But if you, if it's not like that, if uh, the person puts you in there and they're like, oh, you have to stay in here for three months or we'll shoot you when you go out or you will have severe consequences when you don't, then this is what you're thinking about why you're doing what you're doing. You're not thinking about I'm doing this because I don't know, I want to meditate for three months in a cave or in my house or I want to try something because of me. No, you feel like you're not in self-control or it's because of your own motivation. It's because of something else. So that's what we were talking about before. It's internal motivation or external motivation. And I think uh, I saw that also uh, when we were in business school, like I think one of the things that was a bit troubling was when we're, when people were going too much for status or for some external thing and when they really can calm down and do something because they have an internal motivation, uh, like something genuine, if they want to like grow on their own, if they want to help other people, but something that is not just about what someone else thinks about them. I think then it's, it's, it's just very beautiful and things go very well. And I'm not sure how to, uh, how to like uh, structure an environment like that. But I think if we could, instead of, like sh uh, shooting people down for not fitting in, if we could help them to actually uh, establish what they want to reach, what they want to do with their life, how they want to contribute to society. And if we could help them with that, I think that would be much more interesting and uh, much nicer to see than uh, just uh, putting little, little children in, in a house and telling them you have to do this because otherwise you are bad and you will not do anything with your life. And the kid around you, like the kid behind you, they will be your boss and they will boss you around. And you're such a bad uh, ch uh, children, uh, child. And I think um, if we just have another attitude towards uh, school that is not about punishment so much, but about yeah. actually, hey, uh, I'm, I'm not forcing you to do anything, but like you're a child, you're curious, you want to learn something. What do you want to learn? Um, if, but, but the thing is, we don't trust, we don't trust this process. Uh, it feels yeah. like very much. Uh, we don't, because we lost it all. Like uh, I lost it. I think you, uh, you say you lost it. And I think everyone lost it because we were in this prison and we cannot rely on people actually being like, hey, um, everyone wants to learn, everyone wants to grow. And, um, but I would like to see this also in a lot of like, if you have a company, um, if you have your own organization, like how can we do something together? How can we grow like everyone personally, but also us as an organization and how we can we bond together and do something and yeah, just spread way more love and then, <laughs> then this, um, current very restrictive system. I would love to see that. I, I agree. Uh, no one should feel trapped in their education system. And you, you can see that this is very much a personal person. opinion and not so much scientific and very straightforward. It's like, uh, it's very anecdotal. It, but, I mean, yeah. obviously, <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's, a, it's a strong anecdote and I'm pretty sure many can relate to that. That's tough. Uh, 
there's also always uh, what what I have to think about. It's like what what's the goal? Like what's the goal of the formal education system? Let's just take uh, elementary school. Like let's let's just take those twelve years elementary school, and then um, secondary school. Like uh, what's the why is the state putting so much effort into that? Like one thing is employing the next generation of labor force. Yeah. Uh, getting tax money, future tax money. Tax money. So it's future tax money and it's basically doing something with the children so you get the current tax money because the parents can work. Exactly. So if you, if you see it like this, that's maybe not the uh, most beautiful incentive and goal, but uh, no. that's very pragmatic. Yeah, uh, it is. Um, like education as an institution... Uh, like looking back to the first real classrooms, Maria Theresia, uh, there, that, w- that was the general idea, teaching them some things and especially teaching them sitting straight, being quiet, listening to the, mm. the foreman slash teacher uh, talk their inst- and then do the instructions. Uh, and uh, like I'm, Whenever people, like you said earlier, are very critical about the the incremental change because that's kind of like our starting point, then I I fully agree because it's a very weird starting point because what does education really mean if that's that's where we, our base assumption is, is that kind of world. Uh, And that also makes the topic very appealing but also very complex um, because you have so many interests so many players in it, uh, so many, so many different. Yeah, it's not just a, it's not just an engineering challenge where you can be. Well, I have the perfect system. How I can design uh, software that uh, teaches people to learn, and maybe I thought a bit about the psychology of learning. You now you have the whole cultural thing that is in the background there, and you have to deal with that. And yeah, uh, thank you very much for actually pointing that out. Um, also, something uh, where I'm thinking, yeah more and more about um i would also be very interested in actually uh doing something uh and actually i mean having some proof of concepts of how we can uh change them in the future so yeah um, yeah i mean that's uh <laughs> unfortunately so but i i made the decision when uh, starting the program or even before that i don't want to focus on formal education mm-hmm. a lot of ways be- or a lot of reasons because it is so complex and it is so different in so many countries. And what I really want is to understand the the individual, like kind of like having an approach of how can you help a person who just wants to learn content, learn that content. Because we just pointed out with schools, it's not just about learning content. It's not about just learning a no. skill. There's so many interests of so many people and institutions that go into it. And that's where the my primary goal of supporting learning kind of gets lost and is going to run against so many walls because it's just not, or in a lot of ways, not the first priority. So I'm really trying to go on like this lifelong learning track. People, how do people learn when they really want to learn? Um, when you give them content, how can you give it in the best possible way for them to learn quickly 
but also deeply and really master it so they can apply it to their lives. So it's not just an online class they did a long time ago. It's not just a language class they did a long time ago. It's not just Duolingo playing games um, to yeah. make points and uh, keep your ranking up. Uh, so it's really about um, learning something, developing a skill that will contribute to changing your life to the better. And uh, this challenge alone is, uh, is, is big and vast, excluding all the political and institutional and societal interests. Um, so it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's so complex. I didn't expect it to be as complex. I also thought there would be much more, ma much more concepts or... to be established already. Yeah. Like how does learning work, for example? And you sit in there with a brilliant researcher of that space, cognition and learning. And what she tells you is, we, we can't observe learning. You can observe the result of it, but you can't actually observe the actual process that is happening in the brain. And not being able to do that, we just use a lot of representations. And we just well, I think I think uh, I, I don't know how you think about artificial intelligence and uh, deep learning and how you, how much you've actually done there, but uh, for me, uh, like I I thought a lot about machine learning. I did a lot there, um, also a while back ago already, and I kind of like already like uh, always thought about like how those two concepts actually mix together. Uh, what's actually the parallels between that? And I don't know if you, uh, if you, I mean, this is my uh, point of view also uh, often that, uh, that we can basically learn from the machines, uh, how we are learning or vice versa a lot. I'm not sure if uh, this is actually also a part in your degree. Uh, I think it would be quite uh, straightforward that this is actually something where you want to draw a lot of parallels. Uh, yeah, I mean, to the degree question, it's possible to do so. Like you can focus on computational learning. Um, I haven't taken any class on it yet. Um, also because, right, like the next thing, as I said, is going to be getting my first, let's say, formal deep learning education um, and experience. I mean, I've tried out libraries and trained models. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. But I never really went into depth and never went deep, actually saw what is happening and tried to conceptualize and understand that. So I'm really looking forward to, to actually getting that experience. So far, it's been mainly like just basic machine learning techniques um, and doing a little bit of research and explainable eye to, to understand how it's working. But like when it really comes to creating learning that might be able to compare to to how human learning works um i don't have much experience with that yet yeah, i think it's very interesting if you actually look into reinforcement learning then mm -hmm. to actually observe like because there you see them like this is basically what we would call or if it really works in a like broad sense that's what we would call like general artificial intelligence i guess or something that can really learn and do whatever task because it's it's goal orientated. You want uh, so your system it wants to achieve something, whatever that is. Maybe play Go or chess or <laughs> or I don't know, uh, clean your room uh, or 
fly to the moon or whatever it is. Uh, but just having a system that can observe uh, things in the outside world and see what works, what doesn't work, to get rewards for for certain actions or basically get a positive feedback for things that work, don't work. Um, that really seems to, uh, and also like this really seems to like uh, be similar to how we are learning. Of course, also we have a lot of, we, uh, we copying what other people do. Uh, we have this conceptual learning maybe that's a bit, a uh, bit, uh, harder so if like sub models of how things work and when to use them um, but I think uh, but I think uh, if you if you look into this uh, it's very interesting what you can maybe also establish for yourself how you think about learning and uh, also maybe about uh, why why you're actually motivated to do something or not and I think also if we take this concept towards like uh, what do people actually enjoy I think Duolingo okay you get you get ranked higher or you get a reward uh, or an award or whatever that uh, works to some degree. Um, I wouldn't say it's basically so if you optimize for those awards or those rewards, it's not the same thing as actually learning the language. And I think we see this. Uh, I think you criticized uh, Duolingo like a few minutes ago for and I, and I see it because it's uh, it, you, you don't really get good at language. You get good at Duolingo and it's a different task. Yeah, and I hope I really hope that, uh, or I see that there is some potential if we use AI. <coughs> that if we use AI, that if we have an understanding of a lot of this content, yes, um, we can actually uh, really direct people towards what they should do, what they want to do, and maybe just coach them more. So because I think. You already uh, said like, hey, we can actually like do those. Uh, you said flipping classrooms. Uh, we can do the flipped classrooms, where it's not so much about actually listening, but actually doing something, playing around, getting feedback. And why not also make this basically more personalized? Why not have a computer that knows you better than anyone else actually knows you because they know all of your interactions you already had with this content, and they can direct you more. And then you can still talk to your friends and uh, try to figure out stuff together. Um, I really hope that there's some potential and that uh, people will work on this. And I think there's a huge, there's a huge, uh, there's a huge uh, business case here also because uh, if you figure out uh, how people can learn, and if you understand what they know and don't know, what they're experts in, what does it mean? Um, we see that all those, uh, like, there's this discussion now, okay, can something like ChatGPT or those language models uh, replace something like Google because it organizes the information better? Uh, okay, um, this, is, uh, uh, this is one thing, but what if we actually understand the people? What if we understand what they can do, cannot do? Um, what if you cannot maybe just ask the general knowledge, but someone who understands the concept. So you find out a person that knows what you sh are missing towards uh, achieving a goal, like problem-centric uh, problem learning. Um, uh, so what if you connect all those people? And of course, then for employers, like who is the person in this world who can actually solve my problem that I have here right now at this minute or that is about to emerge? 
So I think there's a huge business case if people really can uh, can make this assessment of people, can uh, put them in some structure. And let's see what uh, the future will bring here when it comes towards uh, replacing Google or really bringing this forward because we know this is not the best way because at the moment, like, what are we? We, like, the cyborgs with two thumbs to type in some prompt and are like, hey, um, what is uh, the, when did Columbus sail to uh, India, right? Um, when did he sail to India? Um, and yeah, then you get the number and this is how we're basically getting our information now. And yeah. you can have something more useful like, okay, <clears throat> how do I uh, like calculate something in a Google spreadsheet or whatever? And now uh, with ChatGPT, maybe you actually ask the exact question and you get a personalized answer, which is maybe wrong because it's not so good yet. But um, I think it's going more and more in this direction that we actually can, the way we organize information and connect to each other, I think we're talking more and more about something that goes towards social intelligence, uh, like real social intelligence, not the emotional intelligence, but actually where we collectively uh, like interconnect so well that we can achieve way, way more. And it's not just about the individual anymore, uh, but much more about uh, like this, uh, this world uh, where we merge with technology and we just like interconnect so much that we can just do more than uh, we would ever think we could with our limited capacity for learning. <clears throat> how would you? How would you make this connection possible? This connection? Well, um, so uh, if I would uh, give you an example, what you can already do now, it's like you can, like everyone, maybe listening here then later, um, if you use something like ChatGPT or something else. Prompted to, I don't know, you want to learn about a topic. I tried it with Python programming, for example. First question you ask, okay, give me the main uh, topics of Python programming. And it will tell you, well, what is a variable declaration? What is programming actually, maybe? Uh, what are uh, conditional statements? What are loops and whatever? So mm -hmm. it will give you some topics about this. And then you're like, hey, give me questions about those topics. So this is a very content-focused uh, approach. And then you're like, okay, uh, it gives me questions. Let's say it gives me five questions for each of those topics. And then I'm like, okay, I would try to answer those topics. And then you are like, hey, um, ChatGPT, how good is my answer to this question? Rate it on a scale from 1 to 10. And then after you rated it, give me some personalized feedback. And this actually works. So you have a question generated by a model that understands the topic. <coughs> you, you answer this question, you get a rating, mm -hmm. and you get feedback. And now think about actually storing this information and people actually using this to study. And you store all of this information. At some point, you have a very, very good understanding of what people can do and cannot do. At the moment, this is very, like, on a low level, it will not be something huge. But if you extend into the future a few years, this could be something uh, where you have a really, really good understanding of what people can do, cannot do. And if you then know where people are stuck, you know exactly who to connect them with, even 
if the computer doesn't know the answer, maybe a person, they know a person that actually knows how to solve the problem. So you don't even need to have the super intelligent computer to solve the problem. You just need someone who helps them like get unstuck. And if you have a problem, you will find someone. And uh, if you somehow make this system actually such that people use it, then uh, you could get all this data in the world. And I think this is, I'm not sure if that's like the way we will like replace Google. <coughs> but there's certainly uh, very interesting ways of like thinking about uh, how the future might develop. We all know that nobody knows and we thought uh, in 2020 there would be flying cars everywhere and skyscrapers <laughs> and uh, if you look at all the movies uh, it's we are very bad at projecting into the future yeah uh, but I mean it's also what people make out of it so <coughs> maybe that's one idea what could happen uh, in one sector um, and that's uh, yeah how we consume information how we get information and how we basically connect even more through information technology mm. and communications technology. Hmm. I think there's a, it's an interesting approach. A lot of, a lot of missing pieces to that, I guess. Um, like, but the missing pieces seem more like a matter of time than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. Yeah. Hmm. What I what I always find very scary when it comes to creating a system that really understands myself means you gotta you really need to measure a lot. And measuring means you have to give that insight away to someone yeah. else. You give yourself away to the collective. It's it's very scary. I think uh, if we see like this, like technology evolving like this, there's just more and more power. <coughs> Sorry, and it's very unclear who will actually be in charge of this power and who will have control and. Um, I'm not sure if it's maybe over-exaggerated, uh, but it feels like kind of like since 1945, since there were two atomic bombs uh, that were launched in uh, Japan, uh, it feels like uh, power is just increasing and uh, it's just getting more and more dangerous. And I think AI is certainly on my top five uh, like extinction list for uh, humanity, uh, why humanity would go extinct in the 21st century, because how sustainable is this exponential growth? I don't know, but that's a whole other topic. <laughs> I'm curious, what are the other four? Mm. Okay, so top of my head, what uh, what do we have? Um, Bioweapons for sure. Gotcha. Um, I mean, resource depletion and climate change are also some things that people are afraid of. I think climate change is a very nice one because, yes, it's dangerous. You can see it. And it's kind of easy to do something against it, right? 
It's like, okay, just like don't burn fossil fuels and maybe get the carbon out of the air again. It's like, hey, that's easy. Let's, let's focus on this one because we can actually do something against it. But if you think about, okay, what about nukes? Uh, well, people are like, okay, I, we don't really know what to do. Like everyone can like build them. Yeah. We're trying to be more collaborative. Yeah. Such that people actually like, be like, okay, let's uninstall a few of them again. Um, bioweapons. Uh, I think there's, uh, there's with those things, there's um, in the research community, it's very good that uh, also in AI, I think they're in this research community, they are doing that. They're actually like uh, pledging towards not working on things uh, uh, that are potentially too powerful and can be used in very destructive ways. Um, so, for example, with AI, it's like automized weapon systems uh, that uh, people don't want to work in this. So, I uh, also like uh, in my master's program in AI, I also did, uh, we worked on something very interesting. So, it was search and rescue. It was basically drones that would try to find you in the woods for search and rescue. And that was uh, from our professor who actually published that in Nature. And we should uh, implement that and make it better. It was for them, it was just a proof of concept. But there was already like some people speaking out like, hey, uh, we know exactly uh, what this can be used for. Yes, it can be used for search and rescue, but you can also use it just for uh, like military, uh, military, uh, uh, actions and you can use it for finding people in the woods. Uh, it was like you can find them via infrared. Uh, you can shoot them down, and it's just it's just like very scary because with this technology and with something that might be more intelligent than we are, more capable, more easily duplicatable, it's just like it's just like too much power going uh, going into those into this development, and this is something I'm very scared of. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, yeah, but uh, sure, that's one of them. And I think there you can you can imagine other ones. You can for sure imagine something like population collapse or uh, people being stuck in, let's say, in the matrix when social media gets more and more immersive. Uh, so yeah, we don't really know, but there's a lot of uh, scary things. But I think number one is AI by far. It's like. If, if, if people figure stuff out, I mean, automized weapon systems, so that's kind of easy. Mm. But what about actually figuring out something uh, uh, like Singularity, a system that can uh, like redesign themselves to be more, better than it was before, and then it can redesign itself again and again and again. And if that doesn't really stop, well, then whoever has control of this thing has control of, over everything. It's just very scary and uh, if it gets into the wrong hands and you have power concentrated so much and then I don't know what's happening but I think there's there's reasons why Elon Musk wants to go to Mars and I think they're kind of valid. <laughs> <laughs> to add to at least have another another place to go if everything goes to shit. <laughs> yeah, if everything goes to shit here we have maybe another place to go to. Uh, it's like it's kind of like not the best plan, but I mean it's at least one plan. Yeah, it is a plan, <laughs> and maybe the best we have. Maybe the best we have. Yeah. It's it's not the most uh, it's not the most positive uh, tone to to end this conversation, but uh, yeah. I feel it's a good. <laughs> Whew, like 
the whole technology topic always has a dark side. Um, it gets more it quickly. <laughs> but uh, it's not 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 a side that should be ignored. So uh, I feel there is, in a lot of ways, too little talk about that. So yeah, actually, actually appreciate well, that. If we don't know what to do about it, it's I would say it's very it's very hard to have a conversation about something where there's no solution. Yeah, I mean, you just have to try. More pointless. Yeah. Well, Chris, thanks a lot. Mm, thanks, thanks for having me. Uh, I really appreciate it. I wish you best of luck, and yeah. Thanks. I hope you we too. see each other soon again. Maybe also in person, uh, not just uh, on 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 this podcast. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, really enjoy I, it. I I would like that. But otherwise, man, um, let's have another one of those uh, anytime soon. I feel like there's a lot more to talk about. I mean, what did we? What For did sure. we really touch on? Just a little bit on on OpenAI quite a bit on education uh, but I feel that knowledge is gonna be outdated in the next couple of weeks so yeah, uh, yeah. maybe maybe we have a, we have a catch-up what actually happens in six months and then we see like <laughs> hey hey, hey uh, this is developing way more rapidly or hey actually nothing is happening and yeah maybe we have some uh, new points on that and uh, we we can establish some uh, new ideas around that. Yeah, I would like that. I would like that a lot. I would love that. And Chris, thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks everybody. a lot. Bye.